and cosmos will come into line. At last all the course is fulfilled. Yet your beauty alone never ceases. Your merciful love never ends. Your magnificence only again welcome to worship at fusion to those of you who are here in this space as well as those of you who are connecting online we're glad that you're with us this morning and now hear the word of the lord from psalm 33 we wait in hope for the lord he is our help and our shield in him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name may your unfailing love rest upon us O lord even as we put our hope in you I invite you to stand and join us in worship. Yeah. 
is full. You use songs of praise to shake prison walls. I will speak to my fear. I will preach to my doubt. You are faithful then. Good morning, and not to leave your fathers out, happy Father's Day, and to you ones that, you know, this might be a little bit of a ooh, edge just because of loss or whatever, still, happy Father's Day. Remember the good of our fathers, and you know what? If you can't, remember our Father in heaven. He is the one that is good and always will be good. Children um, that can go to children in worship. She is at the door. If you just want to take your way and go that way, that would be great. So a little bit, I, I just, as the kids are leaving, um, this week it was like, okay, Lord, I have to pray again on Sunday in front of everybody. What do I need to do? And it took me a little while um, to really just tune in and listen to what God had to say. And... Um, he made me sit home one day this week, and he says, I don't want you to go anywhere. Just sit home. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, but God and I had a very good conversation, and the word he gave me for today was spiritual warfare. I don't know if any of you know about spiritual warfare, but it's active, and it's alive, and it's here now. It's not just what's written in this Bible. It is here now. And the best way to conquer spiritual warfare is Scripture. And so I went, okay, Lord, what do we have? And he gave me Psalm 9. So I don't know what kind of words God wants me to pray, but I know praying scripture is going to break down those walls that we just sung about. It's going to free us in ways that we've never been free before. So we'll start. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you take care of my enemies. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as a righteous judge. Lord, you have rebuked nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them have perished. Oh, Lord, thank you. You reign forever. You have established your throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Lord, help us never to forget that. You are our stronghold. It's not the world. It's not anybody that may be around me, but only you, Lord, are my stronghold. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Lord, give us boldness to testify to the nations for what you have done. Help me to know the words that need to be said. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. 
Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into a pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net that they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead. All the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. God will never forget. Arise, O Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only mortal. Lord, help us to keep turning our hearts to you. Help us to keep being a soft place, Lord, where you can rest so that we know how to go forward, so we know how to speak. Lord, help us to just continue to trust you and wait. I know, Lord, just help us to trust you and wait on you, Lord. Lord, and we give you this day and ourselves. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Well, good morning, Fusion. I'm thankful for the chance to uh, come across the hallway and share the Word of God with you. I'm returning this week. uh, All the ministry leaders, uh, staff, JB and uh, Aaron and I in particular, were gone for 48 hours on what what we called a work treat. I was laughing. Darwin wanted to make sure we understood it was work, even though it was a retreat. I thought at first that it's such a treat to work here. Why don't we just go off and do that somewhere else? So we had a great time away kind of praying through and looking to the next several uh, years where God would call us, what that would mean. Uh, You'll hear more about it, but I'm very, very good time away. The other thing, if I could take just a a point of personal privilege, and you'll see how it connects back into what I want to say from the scripture. But are you aware that I grew up in the South? I grew up in North Carolina, and my, my mom and dad were from New York City, so they brought with them the holiday of St. Patrick's Day and Columbus Day. But there in North Carolina, we had a holiday that's kind of new to a lot of folks in the United States. It was Juneteenth, and my African-American friends would celebrate that, and I actually learned more and more about it through African-American pastors that I shared ministry with. And it's, let me tell you why I like Juneteenth. You've got to know a little bit of Civil War history, and I'll do that for you. Um, the dates won't be on the test, okay? So just relax, but get a sense of chronology here. And part of what we ought to do all the time is ask, not simply what's happening, but where is God at work? And we ought to answer that with humility. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, Both sides of the war think that God is on their side. Two may be wrong. One is definitely wrong. But let's think about the chronology here. April 12, 1861, Fort Sumter, the federal fort, is fired upon by students at the Citadel. Next time U of M plays them in basketball, keep that in mind. They fire on Fort Sumter. That's marked as the beginning of the Civil War. For the first year and a half, things don't go well for federal troops. Defeat by defeat, led by men like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the Confederacy was able to press back hard. So after a year and a half of that, January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln speaks these words, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state in rebellion against the United States shall be then, thenceforth, forward, and forever free. Now, that was an audacious statement. I tried to think of something, what would that look like, say, in World War II. Imagine 
Um, if right after the British have completed the evacuation from Dunkirk, if Winston Churchill had said, okay, now that we got all the troops here, all the concentration camps in Poland are closed. It's kind of like that. But it was a definitive statement that every human being has value. That was January 1. Five months later, Stonewall Jackson, riding his horse, surveying his troops at dusk, is accidentally shot in the arm by one of his own men. In a few days, they'll have to amputate his arm. And then he dies, May 10. So January 1st, Emancipation Proclamation. May 10, the leading Confederate general dies accidentally. July 1 through 3, the Battle of Gettysburg. The whole military situation of the Civil War changes. November 19, so we're still in the first year. Abraham Lincoln says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Again, a ringing truth that has roots in the Bible's revelation of the value of humanity. What a year, Emancipation Proclamation, death of uh, Stonewall Jackson, Battle of Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address. So what did 1864 have? Pillage, death, destruction. The war hardly seemed to advance. Atlanta burned to the ground. They're still upset about it. 1865, Abraham Lincoln is reelected. And in his second inaugural address, I love the way this guy speaks. Four paragraphs. Can you imagine a politician in our day and time? If it doesn't fit on Twitter, it's a hundred paragraphs, four paragraphs. Let me read to you his last one. With malice toward none and with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall be, have borne the battle and his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Oh, where are those politicians? This is his inaugural address as the nation is at war. Because it's not till a month later that Lee surrenders. And then it's two months after that that Federal General Gordon Granger, having gone to the furthest edges of the Confederacy, to Texas, says in General Order Number 3, the people of Texas are informed <laughs> they usually do the talking, but at this point, it's a little different. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. Wow. I remember my African-American pastor friends telling me about Juneteenth and saying, Brother Bill... It's good news, and good news will not rest until everyone is free. They would say there would be spilt blood at Gettysburg after the Emancipation Proclamation. It would be followed by a long march to the next battle, and the next, and the next. There'd be starvation and privation, fear and wondering. But good news will not rest until everyone is free. Oh, Brother Bill, they would tell me. It's just like the gospel. Good news will not rest until everyone is free. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And it was. But then when the Father raised him from the dead, Jesus said, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Go to the ends of the earth. First in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the utter ends of the earth. And friends, it's taken commitment across centuries. It's taken sacrifice. There's been adventure. There's been lost. But the good news will not rest, we say it, until everyone is free. I'm going to say it again. The good news will not rest until everyone is free. i tell you something. They would say it different at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. 
uh, Brother Raymond, they're just real polite. The good news will not rest until everyone is free. That's what we see in the book of Acts. It's the working out of the gospel, getting to every tribe and tongue. Today we pick it up in uh, Acts chapter 12. We're going to see heartbreak and violence and wonder where is God in this? Where is the power? May God give us eyes not only to see history where God is at work, but to see, as it were, in the realm of the Spirit where the warfare may yet go on. Follow with me as I read. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. They had John, I'm sorry, they had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, Herod proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting Peter, Herod put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church, ah, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now I skip over a number of verses here, but Peter is rescued from prison by an angel that shows up. He thinks it's a dream or a vision. He's not sure what to make of it. He goes to the place where they're praying, knocks on the door. The little servant girl says, whoa, it's Peter. Freaks out, runs back and tells folks. Doesn't even open the door. And that's where we pick up. So Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, said Peter, and this is a different James than the one killed. It's probably James, the brother of Jesus the half-brother. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. He wanted to be safe. Jail's no fun. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter, and Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards, and then he ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, then, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a, a trusted personal servant of King Herod, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his regal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, oh, this is the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Luke, who after coming to faith as a trained physician, traveled with Paul and cared for his medical needs, and then began to interview eyewitnesses and and gather the facts, work down to the details. Certainly he talked with Peter about this. He probably talked with James's mother. May well have talked with Rhoda, the servant girl. But he wanted to gather things that stand at the core of our faith that we might see and understand the gospel of God's grace. Thank you that he carefully recorded them. It's a marvelous story of how across centuries you've preserved those texts so that now... In the freedom of our moment, we may open the scrolls, as it were, translate, study, pray, and then share this moment. Make your word clear, Father. Guard your people from my sin and brokenness, and make Jesus known. Thank you for your great love. We pray together in his mighty name. Amen and amen. Well, there's a lot going on related to power in this text. And so the question that I would ask is this, who's got the power? What's going on with these things? Who really makes things happen in whatever's going on? Who helps things? Ah, there we go. Thank you. Who's got the power and who makes it happen? You'd first guess that it may well have been Herod. When we begin this passage, we see that Herod is killing people. 
He's got the power of life and of death. James is killed, and he's killed by the sword. That probably means it was bloody and gruesome. Yes, Herod has the power of the world. And that's the power he'd grown up and been raised in. Think for a minute about his family line. This is Herod Agrippa, we learn from history. His uncle, Herod Antipas, had been another ruler. He'd actually seen Jesus. Remember, Herod, Pilate sets Jesus over to Herod, and Herod has this encounter. This Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas, would have chopped off John the Baptist's head. That was his uncle. His grandfather, that was the Herod who killed all the baby boys under two years old at the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph had been warned by an angel and fled to Egypt. Herod the Great, as history calls him, was so enraged, the slaughter of the innocents, we call it. Imagine a family meal. Oh, Grandpa Herod, tell me the story of how you killed all those babies just so we could be rich and secure. That's his family line. No wonder Peter, when he got out, hid and moved. This is a dangerous guy who seems to hold the power of life and death, who seems to have all the cards. Oh, we see that power, and it's attractive, isn't it? Too often, the church is seduced into pursuing the power of the world. Oh, now, we want the power of the world for God and our benefit, but the power of the world, it looks like it rules, but you know how this chapter ends, verse 23, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. We see in chapter 12, the people of God, not seduced or hoping or wishing they had the power of the world, but resting in the power of God to establish his kingdom. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm thankful for the Constitution we have. You can tell I'm something of a history buff. It's been amazing to watch that. I'm thankful for the rule of law and for legal recourse. These are indeed gifts passed down to all of us to be appreciated, and they're to be stewarded for the next generation. But I want to tell you something. Those things, good as they are, are not the final source of a believer's joy or hope or peace. Jesus talked about a peace that the world cannot give. And if you and I have a peace that the world cannot give, the world can't take it away. It was not the benefits of the world's power that would produce kindness or gentleness or self-control. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So whatever's going on here, the power of this world, dangerous as it might be, is not the final and controlling power. To compromise the call of God for the sake of power and standing of the world is to step away from what the church is living like right here in this time and in this place. Well, who's got the church, the power? Is it the believing church? <laughs> Let's be clear. The believing church in this chapter, and indeed clearly for the first three centuries, had no power. There was no legal recourse they could take. Oh, Herod's overstepping his spouse. We'll take him to court. No, he was it. They had no wealthy advocates to protect them, no private security force or militia. Not until the fourth century in the conversion of Constantine was the church even recognized to be able to exist with the blessing of the state. Many would observe that that moment, gaining some appreciation, even power in the world, actually became something of a distraction to the church. Now that we're established, we look to something other. It's easy to get caught up in the power of the world and to turn from life-shaping trust in God. That's what I want you to see in the believers in chapter 12. Having nothing, they were free and had everything. Even more than being powerless in terms of the world, the early church lived a life that was marked by forgiveness and reconciliation. 
Do you remember Jesus saying we should band together and resist our enemies? You don't, because he didn't. What did he say we should do to our enemies? Love them. And I want to tell you something. The word he used there is agape, which means to act in their best interest, whether it pays off or not. You see, the church of Jesus Christ lived a different life, a life marked by forgiveness and reconciliation. I discovered a, a scholar from the University of Edinburgh named Larry Hurtado. Fascinating books, The Destroyer of the Gods. And another theological lecture he gave is called, Why on Earth Would Anybody Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? He looks historically at the first three centuries of life in the church, and he sees that the church was unique and distinctive, not blended in. They're great books. I've got further resources. Do you go to the sermon resources blog that the pastors prepare each day? You can look at some of those books or some other things there that relate to this. One of the things he says that stood out, that set the early church apart, was that they were a people of forgiveness and reconciliation. You could burn their houses. They wouldn't burn yours. You could kill James. They wouldn't try to kill your people. Now, it's true. They could not retaliate, but it's clear they chose not to retaliate because they lived in light of a greater power and a greater love. When your life has been given to you by God's grace, no power on earth can take it away. And that's life-changing. This same thinking would continue across the centuries. Fast forward to the 1980s. A pastor by the name of Yosef Tan, living under the oppressive Marxist regime of Nikolai Kokeshu, would preach and stand for the gospel and for all that it means. In his published sermons, he told how the authorities threatened to kill him. He responds, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing my supreme weapon is dying. Whoa. That's not a power of the world. But that's a power that shapes the world. I want to press this a bit. Who's got the power? Is it even the prayers of the church? I want to think some about what prayer is and, and what prayer means. Because we read that as Peter was taken off to prison, the church prayed for him. And it's good. It's right and good that we do. And Jesus says when we pray to bring him our needs, our fears, our brokenness. But I, I want to challenge for, or, or maybe ask you to challenge in your heart. Is prayer what we do to get what we want from God? And I'll suggest to you, if prayer is what you do to get what you want from God, you're going to be disappointed. I just tell you up front. It's not that you need to learn to pray more or pray better or pray different. Make your needs known, but begin to think of prayer, prayer like Acts 12, as joining with God, communing with him, that he might speak, that you might exchange, that he might shape you. Think of the people that are praying in Acts 12. There's James's mother. Did her son die because she didn't pray enough or didn't pray fervently? Wrong prayers? No. But I want to tell you something that I think happened. God had been at work in her life for years. Remember, she had approached Jesus to say, uh, pardon me, sir, could my two sons sit at either hand when you come into your kingdom? You know, the boys, Boanerges, sons of thunder. Her kids must have been something. And she wanted them right there. But after she saw the death and resurrection of Jesus, as she began to walk as she saw the death of her son, did she grieve? I'm sure she did. What mother wouldn't? But by taking that grief to God, there's a moment for a, a, a transformation. James didn't die because his mother didn't pray enough. God, in the mystery of his good purpose, called James home. And his mother, in her grief, would have found comfort that only comes from God. may not make it on TV, but that's what you see here in Acts chapter 12. How about Peter's wife? 
You know, we don't make a lot of it, but the scripture mentions that Peter had a wife. He had a mother-in-law, and how do you get a a mother-in-law? Got to have a wife. Can't have one without the other. Here's Peter's wife. Peter has now been imprisoned for the third time in the book of Acts. He, He left the family business, which was making good money. He got involved in preaching, third time in jail. Do you think that was stressful for her? Do you think there was fear? How am I going to feed those who look to us? How am I going to take care of my mother-in-law? Do you think there was fear for her? I want to tell you something. I've had the opportunity over the past mm, 40 years to get to know one particular pastor's wife pretty well. And I've seen her face hurt that I would never have wanted her to face. And I'm sorry for that. But I've seen in that hurt and in that fear and in that insecurity, I've seen her go to God in prayer and God begin to reshape something in her heart and her life. And did we face difficult times? You bet we did. But God began to shape something in her And now one of the reasons I'm still in ministry is because there's a praying wife who doesn't see prayer as what you do to get what you want, but sees prayer as joining with God in his mission, intercession that shapes the planet, not because we have the power of the world, but because we are seated with him in the heavenly places. C.S. Lewis did not say this, but the character in Shadowlands did. It's still a good word. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. That's the power of the gospel. I commune with God. He changes me. His mission then pours through my life. Do you think the early church was angry as they saw James murdered, Peter imprisoned? Do you think it was unfair and it got to them? I bet it did. I've been in a place where I've been treated unfairly. Never seen somebody murdered like that, but who knows? I want to suggest that the early church was probably angry, probably filled with a spirit of revenge, but in the place of prayer, that revenge turned in to a hope with forgiveness. And they began to live not with violence, pursuing the power of the world, but with forgiveness. That's what Larry Hurtado, the scholar, saw them do. Mind if I poke the tiger? Those people didn't say, oh, let's gather up our swords and go out into the desert. We'll come up with a plan to kidnap Herod on his way to his vacation palace. No such thing. They prayed. God took the hurt and the anger took the revenge that they sensed and felt and turned it into a group of powerless people that joined the mission of God, changed the world. That's the invitation. What's your prayer life like? Is it a place that you meet God, that you're changed? Is it a place that you hear him speak and guide? If it's not, please don't feel any shame or guilt, or, oh no, another thing I've got to do. What I want you to hear is an invitation to enter into God's grace in a newer and deeper and powerful way. Hear the invitation of God's love to be more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because you see, the one who's at work, the one who's got the power in Acts 12, is God himself. It's God the Spirit. He's changing the church. He When time's up for Herod, he puts an end to Herod. It's God who is at work. Don't miss him in Acts chapter 12. God himself deals with that wicked Herod. God himself will be the comfort for James' mother and for his brother. God himself will provide a security for Peter's wife. And God himself will change the church from angry, vengeful, feeling powerless to a people who live to a different joy and hope. Who's got the power? Friends, God himself does. Think about the history of the church. Who had the power, Adolf Hitler or Corrie ten Boom? 
Even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he was hanged, who had the power in that moment? Do you remember Sheriff Bull Connor in Alabama? He had the deputies. They had the fire hoses and the German shepherds and the billy clubs. All Dr. Martin Luther King had was nonviolence and the Spirit of God. Do you remember Martin Luther, a simple German monk? Pope Leo expressed all the spiritual power of the church at that time. Emperor Charles V, all the power of the world. And Martin, a single monk, would stand there and say, the scripture teaches this, here I stand. How do you do that? It's a work that God does here that expresses itself. Martin Luther would sing, I, I, I love, a mighty fortress is our God, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Whether it's Herod, whether it's the whatever it may be, it's God. Too often the church is seduced into pursuing the power of the world for God when instead what we see here is the power of God at work to rescue the world. I want to close with a story that's meant a lot to me. I, uh, you'll find more about it in the sermon resources and even an opportunity if you'd like. I'd love to sit down and talk through this in a documentary with you. But it's a story of a woman named Nadine Collier. She lives in Charleston, South Carolina, a city that I've been to and love. And on the night of June 17, 2015, she got a phone call. And it was a family member saying, do you know where your mama is? There's been a shooting at the church. And Nadine knew immediately that that would be problematic because her 70-year-old mother, Ethel Lance, would never miss a prayer meeting with her church. She would be at Mother Emmanuel. And that night, June 17, they were joined at their prayer meeting that had gone on for years. Think of that. But in this moment, a young man named Dylan Roof joins them. He's packing. They don't know. He would later say, I almost didn't kill them. They were so nice to me. But after the amen, he started shooting point blank. And then he took a woman and said, I'm not going to shoot you. Somebody's got to tell. And he pointed the gun to his head and he pulled the trigger and he was out of ammunition. He ran. Unfortunately, the wheels of justice, the rule of law, progressed. He was captured. He was brought back to Charleston, held there. And there's a moment that the gospel was preached in the courtroom in Charleston. They brought him in for a bond hearing, the rule of law. They read the charges against him. And then they asked family of survivors. The judge gave them an opportunity to speak. And that's when Nadine Collier stood up. She looked at him through the video camera. And she said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Family member after family member would come up, grieving. That's real. It hurts. But empower the Spirit. Speak of God's mercy and forgiveness. Friends, that's the good news. And the gospel will not rest until everyone is free. I want to tell you, if your heart is bound with anger... If there's a wound that you've carried for years, you know, I talk with people sometimes, and I can't even go to that place or be at that family. I, I go the first hour of the family reunion. That sister-in-law goes to the last hour. I, whatever it may be, Jesus went to the cross to set us free that his grace might work through us in the power of forgiveness. That's what we see in Nadine Collier. You know what the date was? when she spoke words of forgiveness to Dylan Roof? It's Juneteenth. It was Juneteenth. The good news will never rest 
Don't let it rest in you until everyone hears of a saving God and his transforming power. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, it's a hard and broken world. And we come in like James's mother grieving or like the church angry and vengeful because of injustice we see or harm we felt. Perhaps it's been personal or in our family. And we feel so powerless. And yet could it be that in the heavenlies beyond what we can see or know, you are at work, that the hope of the gospel is changing us and that through us you will bring a message that will not rest until all have heard. Thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has rescued us in our brokenness, and that as he fills us and transforms us, he sends us out. Thank you for your kindness. Father, be tenderness to those whose hearts grieve even now, but be transforming hope as your Holy Spirit ministers. I make this prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing. I will call Incline your ear to me anew And hear my cry for mercy, Lord
now go with these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.